My guest today is the political editor and Badgett columnist at The Economist magazine, Adrian Woolridge. Along with Alan Greenspan, he's co-author of the excellent new book, Capitalism in America, A History, which he joins the show to talk about with me today. Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, the book uh, is fantastic. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. I wrote a, 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 a little mini review of it for on the AI website, but it, it opens with an interesting sort of thought experiment. Uh, imagine if there was a, a, a Davos meeting, you know, the, the meeting of the globalists that we hear about so much in the news. If there was a Davos meeting uh, back in 1620 and, and all the members sort of made their case of which country or region would be the most influential and dominate the global economy over the coming centuries, nobody would have, uh, nobody would have pointed to America, which at that point was uh, a bit of a wilderness. But obviously, We've done pretty well over the past four centuries, and uh, I always like to give alternate titles to the books when we have authors. And maybe an, an alternate title to your book, not necessarily a better title, would have been sort of what made America great. So what did we do right that the last 400 years have been have worked out pretty well for the United States? Sure. Uh, um, what made America great, the economics of American greatness, would have been a very, very good title. We chose Capitalism in America because we wanted to echo... Uh, Alex de Tocqueville's great book, Democracy in America, and sure. because we think, you know, if you're going to define the essence of American genius, democracy is one way to do it, but I think capitalism is the other way to do it. Um, and indeed, defining what made America great is really what this book is all about. I mean, we try and answer two questions. Why is America great? Why did America become the great power that nobody expected that it would be in 1620? Um, and secondly, can it preserve its um, its greatness, can it preserve its economic preeminence? Uh, and we say that some of it is to do with, um, the, well, we say that the, the driving force behind American greatness is that America has a greater toleration um, for creative destruction than any other power on earth, than any other economy on earth, um, that it's less worried about destruction and that it's better at creation and that the combination of tolerance for destruction and, 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 and um, genius for creation creates higher levels of productivity. Um, so that's our description of, 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 of what's going on. Uh, the question is why? Why does America have this tolerance for, for creative destruction? And we say it's partly because of the size of the country, that it's a huge canvas for people to work on. And whereas European countries tend to be very crowded, uh, tend to have lots of people impinging upon each other. America, for a lot of its history, had a huge amount of, uh, of, of open space. It's secondly about its, um, its timing. It was the first country to be born in the era of capitalism, in the era of, uh, era of business. It was basically created at the, uh, at the same time as Adam Smith wrote, uh, you know, the greatest work of capitalist economics, The Wealth of Nations. Um, and it was a country that didn't have the sort of uh, hangover of feudal traditions uh, that France had or Britain had or indeed Germany had. So it was born, uh, it was born a business civilization in a business world. So those, those are our biggest reasons. The other uh, reason, of course, is, is the Constitution, which, of course, is to do with when, uh, when it was born, that America, America's Constitution um, put a limit to the power of government ascribed certain rights and um, liberties to individuals which were, were inviolable, um, and even um, 
put right at the center the notion of property and indeed intellectual property. And this constitution provided defenses for, for, for business and in, in individual entrepreneurs, uh, restraints on the power of, 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 of government, um, and I think has been one of America's most important weapons over the year against uh, over the years against stagnation. So this, uh, the, 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 those are the preconditions. Then we go on to talk about the importance of of America's entrepreneurial spirit, the way that America regards businessmen as heroes. Um, that in Britain, the, the people tend to defer to aristocrats. They tend to want to be sort of aristocrats. They tend to want to live the sort of Downton Abbey life. It, the American, uh, the um, the French, like the idea of intellectuals and being Jean-Paul Sartre, being some sort of philosopher sitting on the, the left bank, meditating on the meaning of life. The Germans uh, revere scholars and uh, that, the scholarly life. America, the highest thing that you can be really is a great entrepreneur. Um, so that's that spirit. And that's one of the constants of American history. You can see it in the 18... 60s, 70s, and 80s. You can also see it in Silicon Valley today. You know, there's no country, I think, that has the same reverence for entrepreneurs that America still, does. Still stunning how that, that that attitude sort of remains. I I, yeah. I, I write, uh, you know, quite a bit about, you know, where, you know, why don't we see these sorts of, you know, you know, very successful, you know, tech companies in in Europe as we do in the United States. And there's a number. Of reasons, but I would also say that in Europe they seem very much more interested in regulating these companies uh, than sort of, in sort of uh, creating their own. Now the, the picture the picture you just uh, outlined there is one I'm you know, sort of highly sympathetic to. Uh, I love yeah. hearing about we're a business admiring civilization here. It's a combination of our instincts and our, our attitude, our tolerance for that sort of dynamism and churn. In the economy, um, and that explains why we went from being, you know, a um, you know, a, a hugging a, a sliver of the East Coast to being this sort of con- very successful continent-spanning uh, country. It, what is the alternate theory? Because I, I think some people would say that you have you have given again a very sort of pleasing version that folks might, like myself like, but there's an alternate theory that I don't know if it involves uh, the U.S. got great be- just because we we. Uh, we had so many, uh, you know, resources to begin with. We we have natural resources. Uh, we uh, have these two oceans protecting us from war on either side of our country. Slavery. They would point to a lot of other re- a lot of other reasons. How much merit is is there into some of the counter arguments? Well, I mean, the counter argument of having an abundance of natural resources is is not a negligible counter argument. When we start this book, we note that uh, you know Americans were uh, under the uh, under British rule uh, you know the, the the richest some of the richest people on earth uh, they were taller on average than people back in England they had forests they had uh, fish they had game they were surrounded by um, natural resources and they had access to natural resources in a way that some um, people didn't uh, back in England didn't back in Europe uh, because they were in a, in, a, in a continent that was sparsely populated uh, uh, at the time. So there is some truth in that. Uh, there's also uh, another rival theory, of course, is that um, the government played a, a vital role in creating American prosperity and that it used uh, a system of tariffs to protect America's infant in- industries um, from European competition. That's a very, uh, um, it's a very, po- it's a very popular theory. I can tell you that whenever I, I, I approach this topic, uh, you know, 
you know, if I let's say if I'm writing about it on social media, that is almost the number one response. I either get yeah. a response saying, well, it was basically because of exploitation of labor, slavery. But more popular than that is the idea that it's that the story of America is really a story, uh, at least in the first half, toward protectionism. And then in the second half, it's more of a, a story of, you know, the New Deal, that kind of thing. But the idea that protectionism yeah. is sort of what really uh, made America the world's leading economy by 1900, it's, it's really the story of tariffs. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you why it's wrong. I mean, it, 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 is, a, it is a powerful theory, and you can uh, ascribe the, you know, the, the genius of uh, Alexander Hamilton. To, 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 you, you, you can uh, say Hamilton is one of your supporters, you know, and he did, of course, talk about infant industries. Sure. But the problem with the theory is, firstly, that tariffs were a way of raising revenue. Indeed, for much of America's history, they were the only way of raising me- revenue. They were principally regarded as, as a revenue-raising device rather than a device for um, government policy. I don't think there was any coherent, well-thought-out government policy for protecting the steel industry or, pro- or protecting the oil industry. Um, there was um, a, 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 an ad hoc policy of raising revenues because you didn't have any other access to, to revenues. And I think the most important thing about America was not that it erected tariffs to British steel or, 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 or other British products. It was that it was um, vast. It was the world's biggest coherent internal market. It's not a story of, of, of external An internal market without, barriers. without it's, tariffs. It's a lack of internal barriers. Right, right exactly. Yeah. And then if you look at the steel industry, if you look at the rise of Carnegie um, and, and uh, the U.S. steel industry in the second half of the 19th century, I think it's very hard to argue that that was because you had tariffs against British steel. It's because you had um, partly natural resources, of course, uh, and, and you could bring those, na- those factors of production together uh, very easily in, in the form of coal, in the form of, in the form of um, the, the, the iron ore. Um, but it's also um, a, a matter of the organizational genius of Carnegie. Carnegie saw um, the um, the, the, the importance of steel, how we, we, we could have a steel-based economy, and he saw the way that various innovations in the production of steel, like the Bessemer process, could be seized to Im- improve productivity. And he also saw the way that scale would be um, vital. And he, he outmaneuvered and outcompeted the British steel industry by an incredible degree. I mean, that made the, 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 the existence of tariffs Irrelevant. I mean, he reduced the cost of steel production by about 90 percent uh, between 1870 and 1900, and swamped the, the British steel steel industry. So I don't think I don't think tariffs explain it. I don't think they were part of a coherent industrial strategy, and I don't think they um, account for the sheer organizational dynamism and genius of America. Uh, and again, with, 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 with oil, I think that that's, that that's the same thing. You just have in, in the United States, um, I, I was talking about the, the importance of entrepreneurial genius, but the other sort of genius is, 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 is the, the, the corporate genius, the genius for creating corporations, which is not an individualistic thing. Corporations are ways of you know, bringing people together in, 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 in common common activity. They're sort of communal, private sector communal organizations. And America was the first country to free corporations from the dictates of the state. 
you know, early corporations to get limited liability, you had to be willing to build a canal or, or do something very specific. America was the first country to free those corporations. And it was the first company, country to allow corporations to grow on a gigantic scale. So I, 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 I think, you know, I, I can see the, um, the, the appeal of the infant industry arguments. I don't think it works. And again, I can see that, that you know, a lot of people also talk about the importance of government after the Second World War in keeping America going. And I think it was not, not irrelevant. But what's it, what it strikes me as interesting is what government didn't do rather than what it did do mm. after the Second World War. It didn't uh, nationalize industries in the way that the British government and many other European governments do. It didn't try and plan, it didn't try and control and plan higher education um, in the way that lots of other countries do. Um, did at the time, uh, so it 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 kept out of the way much more than European governments. Well, well it's, uh, it's, did. It, it sort of seems to me that people sort of who are you know we have the sort of bout of economic nostalgia in other countries, but certainly in this country, and they look for other periods of prosperity in which there might be policies that they're more amenable to, and they can point to those policies and those periods as showing another way to have an, a, an economy. They point to the, they point to the times of tariffs in the uh, the late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, "Well, tariffs were tariffs were why America got rich," and then they'll also point to the sort of immediate post-war uh, decades as a sign that you can run a different kind of economy, which you don't need to have this globalist economy. You can you can have an economy that's not necessarily um, a, a, a free trading economy as economy cool. of strong unions, high taxes, and we and the economy did just fine in the 1950s and 1960s. So perhaps perhaps that should be the model for where, where we should be today. Sure. sure. And, and it's quite interesting that the sort of interventionist uh, position, which one associates with a lot of people on the sort of on, on the left, like Michael Lind, has also been taken up by many people on the right with the, with the rise of Trumpism. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, if you look at many of the industries um, that um, were dominant in the post-war period, uh, they become very decadent very quickly when they're divorced from global competition. And you can look at the car industry and you can look at the steel industry. Both those industries ceased to innovate um, ceased to be very productive, became very self-indulgent. Um, they may have been quite good for car workers. It certainly wasn't very good for car consumers. And, you know, they, they actually start producing much better products um, after they're subjected to global competition. You know, the American car industry, um, thanks, to, thanks to competition from, from, first of all, Japan and also uh, Germany, is a much better industry now than it was in the 1960s and 1970s. And remember, the left at that time, a lot of the left at that time, was very critical of the car industry because it was an oligopoly, because it, you know, people, people, because a lot of the cars were unsafe, um, and a lot of the production, you know, the people talk about stable uh, manufacturing jobs, but a lot of people at the time said, pointed out that those manufacturing jobs were very tedious, um, and uh, the rise of Japanese production systems has, 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 has you know, done a lot to make. Uh, Make manufacturing both more efficient and and better for the workers. And, and I think the and uh, another period is sort of you know again this sort of economic stalls just sort of manifests in a variety of ways. Uh, one you know it looks all the way back to the 19th century or look, or look toward immediate post-war decades. But now I mean as you're aware of and you wrote a book called Capitalism America. A lot of people think capitalism 
is broken in this country and maybe in other advanced economies. And, the, and they also will make the argument that, well, it has sort of broken before in the early 1900s with the rise of very big corporations. And, and uh, just as then now, just as then, we need to have a we need to sort of break up these large companies. They're, they're, they're too dominant. They're bad for growth. Mm-hmm. Too much corporate power. Um, what do you make of that argument? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things, one of the things that we note in this book is that the, the loss of faith in America is a repeated thing throughout American history. Uh, you saw it, obviously, um, in, you saw it in the late 19th and early 20th century when people began to think that capitalism was, was because, because of these vast concentrations of wealth, was, was, was crushing um, workers. Um, you saw it in the 1930s when we had the Great Depression. You saw it in the ni- 1970s when you had stagflation, and as I, as, as I was saying earlier, when you had lots of lots of big American industries just not competing very well with uh, with with foreign industries. Um, and after each of these sort of cycles of disillusionment, you've seen uh, very impressive resurgences in, in the United States in the 1920s. Um, was a period in which productivity growth, I think, was probably its highest point in American history. And you had the huge democratization of large numbers of innovations. You have the 1950s, late 40s and 50s, when, you know, the golden age of American growth. Um, and you have the 1980s, when you have uh, America re- regaining its dominance in the in the industries which are redefining the world, primarily, you know, a, a computer computers and later uh, the, um, the internet. Um, so America has an extraordinary de- genius for reinvention, which is something to do with creative destruction, I think. It's, it's, it's willing to just to shift, to seize on new opportunities. No country I can think of in the world has been at the frontier of industrial development or economic development in the ways that America has for the same length of time. I mean, America, America has basically been at the frontier since the 1860s. Um, in steel, in electricity, in oil, in um, consumer goods, and then in um, computers and electronics. But, and but certainly like many concerns that we're, we're at the frontier, but we may not be at the frontier, that, uh, that China, you know, you know sp- all, spending all this money, all this investment, big country generating sure. all that data, that America's position at the technological frontier will not last um, till centuries end, that China will China will uh, um, surpass us. Well, the second argument in this book, I mean, the, the first argument in this book is America has has been the world's and is the world's preeminent economic power because of its willingness to embrace creative destruction. The second argument in this book, uh, towards the end of the book, is that America's willingness to embrace creative destruction is on decline, um, and that it's. Uh, position as the world's great innovator and great economic power is under threat more seriously than at any time um, probably in its history. Uh, The reason for that, I mean, if you look at various indices, uh, you can see growing stagnation or or fading fading dynamism is the phrase that we use. If you look at company creation, it's at a historical low. It's lower than it has been since about the 1970s. If you look at geographical mobility, it's, it's low. If you look at the burden of regulations, it's unbelievably high. Um, if you look at uh, large swathes of um, industries, America is being surpassed by China. Um, and if you look at workforce participation, you've got a huge, as the AEI has demonstrated you know, brilliantly, you've got you know, a, a huge problem with, with men 
falling out of the workforce and becoming economically unproductive. And, you know, indices that America used to dominate, which, you know, having the most graduates and the, 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 the by far the most educated population in the world is beginning to fall down those, those things. So there are all sorts of indicators as a flashing red. But, um, and then, but you're, you're arguing we need to sort of return to the model uh, or, you know, make sure we we understand how we got here, make sure that we, you know, we don't regulate or tax away, uh, create destruction, and we make sure we continue to have, exactly. you know, uh, you know, we are our global talent magnet. But sort of the, 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 uh, the, the China argument is, well, there is another model that works. Theirs isn't necessarily sure. a creative destruction model. It's that government is smart enough to, to, to understand what are the industries of the future and sort of at least broadly and just shove a lot of money <laughs> at those industries and that'll work. Because inherent in these That's concerns absolutely. about China is that is people think that model for the first time ever because – they're smarter, they have better computers and algorithms, and the country's run by engineers, that, th- that this new model of state capitalism can at least rival America's, if not surpass us. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that is, that, that, that is the argument. And w- what we're trying to say in this book is, what we've tried to say is, expose the reasons why America became great in the first place and suggest that the way of re- maintaining its lead is to recover and return to um, those, uh, those comparative advantages, um, and that um, the biggest threats to America's uh, position come not from anything that's fundamentally wrong with, with business culture or fundamentally wrong really with the economy. It comes from poor government policies to do with entitlements, to do with regulations, uh, to do with poor financial uh, sector management, um, and that we need to address those so the sort of the innate genius of America for creative destruction can once more express itself. Now, I think China uh, in particular and, uh, and state capitalism in general are the biggest single challenge that has ever been faced, that America has ever been faced with. Partly because state capitalism is quite clever. It's much cleverer than, you know, the b- 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 pure, ca- pure statism, pure state uh, socialism of, of Russia because it tries to m- merge the best features of, of, of capitalism with the best features of statism in its mind, and partly because the Chinese economy is simply so big that we haven't seen anything on this scale uh, before. And state capitalism, you know, is basically tries to work, use the genius of entrepreneurs and use the genius of companies uh, in a way that's sort of guided by the state, but isn't completely dominated by the state. And that is a very interesting model. It's a very exciting model in many ways, but it's so far not demonstrated an ability to, to innovate. It's, it's demonstrated an ability to be a fast follower, um, but it hasn't yet uh, innovated, and it hasn't demonstrated an, ability, it's demonstrated an ability to create some impressive companies, but it hasn't demonstrated an ability to discipline those companies um, when they get too big and too dominant. Um, there's a lot of a lot of resources at, at, at leading companies, but well, they they tend to tend to reduce the efficiency of their use of those uh, resources well, over time. Well, I now have three sorts of big books of economic history on my bookshelf. Now I have uh, Capitalism America. I have the new Douglas Irwin book on trade. I think the, the history of uh, of uh, trade and and the and the Robert Gordon book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Uh, he Very reviewed book. your book in the Financial Times, and I think he yep. was 
critical, at least at least mildly critical of your book um, uh, that you uh, that particularly your your focus on entitlements and how that's crowding out productive investments. Uh, where do where do you and Robert Gordon uh, differ? Well, first of all, let me say that I think Robert Gordon's book on the rise and fall of American growth is an extremely impressive book. Um, and we used it, you know, uh, a lot in our book. We were inspired uh, and, and guided by it to some extent. And it's, it's full of fantastic facts. Um, uh, my problem or our problem with that book is that we weren't persuaded by his central thesis that there's something about the modern high-tech internet-based economy that um, means that growth is slower. And um, he thinks that the, the, imp- the overall impact of cur- the current wave of, of technological innovations is less than previous technological innovations. You're, you're getting less of a boost, particularly less of a boost for the average living standards of, uh, uh, of the workers. They affect a narrower range of activities and they have less knock-on effects. I think that that's wrong. Um, I think that the knock-on effects of the Internet revolution are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as more and more things are are attached to the Internet, as we get intelligent houses and intelligent machines, I mean, and intelligent um, infrastructure, um, as the world is increasingly linked to the Internet. um, I think that the impact of the the, 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 the internet revolution is going to get bigger. And I would liken what's happening now to what happened with electricity. Electricity, for a long time, the great, you know, from electricity is used to light houses in the 1890s uh, and even before. And it doesn't, the great mystery then is why isn't the um, electricity improving productivity? Why isn't it being harnessed by, by, by the manufacturing sector and by, by, and by, by companies? And it's not for a long time, but then in the 1920s, it begins to have a big effect because people start redesigning factories, start redesigning uh, the, the, the uh, production processes to take advantage of, uh, of electricity, start using small motors attached to particular machines rather than one giant motor to, uh, as, as they did before that. And it be, suddenly begins to have a big effect on productivity. And I think that we may see exactly the same thing with, 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 with IT. Right. I mean, his argument is that... The beginning of its effect. Sorry? Argument is, I mean, so, you know, Robert Gordon's argument is that, is that we can do a lot of, lot of right things policy-wise, and we can argue exactly what those things are, but even if we do all, all, all the right things, just sort of the nature of technological advance and progress is that we won't get the same results as in, in the past because all sort of exactly. the easy things have been done, combustion engines and electrification. Exactly. And, you know, you know, VR goggles just aren't going to have the same impact. So that's sort of, and I, and I, and I, and I tend to agree with you that, you know, he's underestimating, um, you know, that these are really sort of, you know, these kind of general technologies like AI can have a big impact. Yeah, they are. But, I, I mean, he may be right, but I, 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 I just don't, I don't think that's right. Um, and what we argue is there's nothing about the nature of the current general purpose technology that means that it won't be the, uh, have the same impact as the last. That what, what we have is problems with, with um, policy. Um, when you have problems with policy, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because you can get better policies. You can do that better, better policies. It's a bad thing because the, the, <laughs> the nature of American politics at the moment is that it's very, very hard for people to agree on on policy changes, right. and, and 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 indeed, on that front, one thing, uh, the other, one other thing that Gordon argues is that 
what sort of growth that we do generate as an economy will, will be highly and unequally shared. Therefore, even though we will continue to generate growth, only a small sliver of the population will get it. And another one of his yeah. criticisms is that you really did not get into the inequality argument, which some economists, yeah. particularly on the left, will argue that is sort of the premier issue facing the economy, that uh, that mm-hmm. even though we can generate growth, it won't be uh, uh, shared as equally as in the past. And that is also sort of a feature of the modern economy, sort of this new Gilded yeah. Age argument. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, that I have two responses to that. One is to quote Schumpeter, who I like. Um, and Schumpeter said, you know, famously that uh, Elizabeth I had silk stockings. The genius of capitalism is not to provide queens with millions and millions of silk stockings. It's to make sure that something that was once reserved for queens can be purchased by, his phrase, shop girls, that it makes basic products much, much, much cheaper um, and means that things that were once luxuries become common goods. So I think that we are seeing, you know, we've seen that happen with mobile phones, with, with, you know, smartphones, mobile phones, which were once luxury goods, which only tiny elites could, could get access to. Now everybody, almost everybody has them. Um, we can see it with access to, you know, libraries of information via the Internet, things that only, only the most privileged people on Earth could get access to. Now we have at our fingertips, you know, so technology is reducing the costs of all sorts of, of all sorts of things. Now, where it, that hasn't happened um, is with education, college education, and healthcare. You know, you, you, you know, the great riddle of why American wages have been so stagnant is is a lot to do with the fact that more and more of, their, of people's paychecks are being eaten up by rising costs of education and healthcare. You know, the cost of buying a television or a computer is going down vastly, but the cost of sending your children to a good university are going, are going up. Um, so it may be the case that we can apply the genius of capitalism to, to, to sophisticated service goods. And I would also say that so the, the fact that Bill Gates is very, very rich, or Steve Jobs is, was very, very rich, or Bezos is incredibly rich, that doesn't really worry me, um, because that's, those, wealth, those fortunes are, in some sense, signs that they're producing, as it were, the silk stockings um, for more and more and more people. What does worry me is the role of rent-seeking in the modern capitalist economy, the, way, the, the role of cronyism, the role of, correct, uh, of connections, um, because that, uh, you know, and the, role of, the role of big corporations that preserve their positions by sticking it to the competition. Do you think to, the big, te- to, the big tech companies qualify at this point? I, I think they're beginning to qualify. I think what's... Well, I think that there was a cycle in the late 19th century where, where the, the great companies produced by, let's say, Andrew Carnegie went from being incredibly innovative to being um, stable um, and cultivating political connections. You know, if you look at the rise of U.S. Steel, it, U.S. Steel, after about 1903, just stops innovating to, in the same degree that Carnegie had been innovating. And I, I'm worried that the tech companies have gone through that cycle faster, that they're, they're, they're now become very defensive operations. If you look at the number of lawyers that they employ and PR people that they employ versus the number of, of pure tech people that they employ, that worries me. It worries me that their capacity, their appetite for buying up rivals um, 
also also uh, you know that, that that that's a concern uh, as and as we finish up obviously i had to bring i, I certainly have to bring up the uh, role of sort of the fed monetary policy uh given that your co-author is uh, alan greenspan and one of your sort of policy um you know solutions is is making banks safer making them you know hold more uh bigger capital cushions which which is what you're really saying is it's a really good thing if you uh, if you if you like capitalism, to avoid these big financial crises, um, yes, that 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 is bad for the capitalist system. System is that when you have financial crises, and then you're going to have people, they're going to begin thinking, gee, maybe we need to, capitalism doesn't work. We need to go other uh, uh, a different kind uh, of system. And uh, if you're writing a book called Capitalism in America, you obviously. We're just sort of ten years here after the uh, after the uh, sort of great recession and great financial crisis, um, but yet uh, you feel that 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 problem has not sort of been fixed. That there's still a, there is still a vulnerability in the U.S. financial system that could lead to another another financial crisis of some making down the road. Uh, I think that the, the, the you know finance is sort of creative destruction on steroids. You know, it it tends to speed up creation if it's you know if you can allocate money. Um, very, very efficiently and ruthlessly. You know, the financial system is ruthless. But also, it tends to overshoot on the destructive side. And, you know, when you get things like the financial crisis in 2008 or the the Great Depression, you you know, it's almost purely uh, destructive. And what you have to do is have a system which doesn't um, hinder the creative side, that doesn't hinder the ability of, 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 uh, of financial companies to innovate and allocate Money in 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 um, intelligent uh, um, and sometimes counterintuitive role ways, but which doesn't allow you know financial institutions to to become almost rontier. I mean, what what happened with financial institutions is that they're playing with other people's money, and when that game goes wrong, then the state comes and and bails them out, and that's not anything that's that, that that's desirable or healthy. And our uh, the way we try and deal with this is to say we uh, uh, Dodd Frank is much too prescriptive, much too big, much too much much too regulation obsessed, and there's a much simpler way of doing that, of dealing with these problems, and that's to force banks to keep much much bigger capital cushions than than, than they do, and they've been very resistant uh, yes. to, to to that. Uh, the capital cushions are a bit bigger than they were that they have a bit bigger than they were just before the crisis, but they're not. In our view, anywhere um, uh, big enough. So you know, if they're going to play, they should be playing with their own money, not with. Were were you, were you and the chairman and never again going back to the state to be bailed out? Were you and the chairman in complete really agreement? That really create disillusionment. Sorry. Were you and Chairman Greenspan? Were you in complete agreement uh, about uh, the role of monetary policy uh, over the past hundred years and the successes and failures of the Fed? Was it, was it complete agreement? Were there any disagreements? Um. I, it's his bag, not my bag. I, mean, I defer to his 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 judgments on, on on all of those things. I would say we were, um, yes, we were in in, in agreements on, on on those things. I think our biggest disagreement probably came over the the role of FDR because I think that FDR understood that combating recessions or depressions is 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 you know it's about mood, it's about politics. So I, I think I have a more sunny view of FDR than, than, than Chairman Greenspan did, probably, but I think on monetary policy. And, uh, and, and to wrap up, uh, again, you, were, you, you focused on financial stability, 
on um, fiscal solvency going forward. Is there any other area of recommendation that you give policymakers if you want to if you want to keep America as a sort of high growth technological frontier kind of economy? Yeah, I'm incredibly worried about the growth of of, of crony capitalism and the intimate connections between big corporations and big governments. Uh, and that's something that both parties are guilty of. And I think that, you know, the revolving door between uh, the Democrats and the Obama administration and um, the big tech companies is just as worrying as the, the connections between the you know, Re- Re- Republican Party and, 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 and various Main Street companies. So I think that... Protectionism uh, makes that more likely, don't you think? Uh, but protectionism massively makes it more likely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, th- I think that although the, the, we've argued in this book that America has a genius for, for, for business and that it's, it's the fact that it likes corporations, the fact that it, it likes entrepreneurs and gives them a lot of freedom is wonderful. We, you have to understand in the end that what really you need is markets, not, you know, the mar- mar- you need free competitive markets. And if businessmen become too powerful and too entrenched and too um, pally with governments or political parties, that's a sign that dynamism is going to be threatened. My guest today has been Adrian Woolridge, author, along with Alan Greenspan, of Capitalism in America, A History. Adrian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much.